If you look in your bulletins this morning, you see uh, the sermon, uh, the person presenting the sermon this morning is Isaac Bixler, uh, pastor intern. Uh, Isaac spent the last two years at Rosedale Bible College, and last year he spent, part, he spent his year in the bridge program, which you've heard us talking about uh, several weeks ago. The bridge program is one of the exciting things at Rosedale Bible College, and Rosedale Bible College is a part of Conservative Mennonite Conference. And one of the important uh, factors in being a part of a conference and one of the benefits is that we, we own a college. We're a part of Rosedale Bible College, and Rosedale Bible College does uh, a great job of, of discipling, of preparing young men and women for uh, life, setting a foundation, whether it's in ministry work uh, setting or in the workplace. And so the Bridge Program, what it does is is they have an op- young men and women have an opportunity to to, to get some, some Bible education, uh, to be discipled as they work in either a ministry field. Um, Isaac interned at uh, Mechanics for Christian Fellowship, um, but also in, in, in Columbus working with uh, sex trafficking, working in homeless shelters and things like that. But then they also offer a business trek where young men and women can, can try out a business field and the process also, uh, and learning how to do business as mission. So they're being discipled and they're doing uh, ministry or uh, vocational experience. And it's, it's a great new program that Rosa Bible College has. Um, you know, Isaac has been working with us here this summer, doing a variety of things, working with youth. And so I'm excited to have Isaac come up and, and to pray with him as he presents the message this morning. He's worked really hard on this. Um, he's prepared well, but there is a certain sense of um, unease when you get up in front of 400 people and share what God has laid on your heart for, for you, and that's what he's doing. So, so this morning, listen to hear what God has for you as you um, hear Isaac. Isaac, let me pray for you. All right. Father, thanks for Isaac. I, Lord, I thank you for his life and just the way that you are are moving in in the direction that you are taking him in life. And I, I pray this morning that you would bless him, Lord, inspire him through your Holy Spirit to speak, give him confidence, give him peace, uh, and, Lord, open our hearts to receive the things that you've given him. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Good morning. It's always awkward. You never know if someone's going to respond or not. Um. So these past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the seven churches of Revelation, um, and this morning, we will be looking at the church of Smyrna. Before we begin to look at the passage, I wanted to um, give a little bit of background information about the city, um, what was surrounding the church, um, so we can understand kind of what the church was going through um, as we read Jesus' message to this church. So the city of Smyrna is the only city that still exists today. It is located now at modern-day Izmir, Turkey. Um, It's found about 50 miles north of Ephesus, off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It was a very large city of trade. Um, It had a large port of harbor, and it was very patriotic. It was very loyal to Rome, and this allowed it to build the first temple to the Roman emperors. Along with this, it also had a large population of Jews. And so between um, the Roman patriotism and the Jewish population, it was quite hostile towards Christianity. And so this, this passage, this letter to the church, um, is often 
called the Letter to the Suffering Church. Jesus is basically writing a letter of encouragement. It's one of two churches that does not receive a rebuke for something that they're doing. Instead, quite simply, it's a call to remain faithful. So that's a short overview of kind of what was going on in the church, what was what will be said in the passage, and then we can read it and pray again for the third time because you can never pray too much, and then we can look at what Jesus said. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, I thank you for your word, for the truth that it gives us in this life. Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage today, that your truth would be evident, that we would receive life and word from you, that our hearts would be changed because of this truth, that we would leave here new believers because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this letter starts out as any good letter should. It starts out with an introduction, and this introduction is very important. Um, Jesus is basically reminding them of certain aspects of who he is, and these aspects or ideas come back again and again um, throughout the letter. So as we look at these, I want you to keep them in the back of your mind, because as we move forward, you'll see them come back over and over again. So this is how he introduces himself. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. What is he saying? The words of the first and the last, it's a reference to um, the Old Testament beginning and end. This was the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is referred to as the first and the last, but it's, it's a reference to his eternity. And eternity is kind of one of those things that, you know, as, as much as we may think about it, you never really understand it. We understand the concept of eternity, what it means to be eternal, that he existed before everything existed and he will exist long after everything ceases to exist. But when we try and imagine what it means to worship God forever, we get a thousand years down the road and we realize we still have eternity. No matter how long we go, we will still have an eternity. And we can't really wrap our minds around it because everything we know has a beginning and an end. Everything. This world has a beginning and an end. And so Jesus is saying, I am fully God. Jesus is saying, I have all of the mind-boggling attributes of God. I am eternal. I am all-powerful. I am fully God. And then after saying, I am God, he says, I died. And when you contrast these two, you realize that Jesus is saying he's divine, but he is also fully a part of this world. He lived and died as man. You know, death is kind of the pinnacle or the... um, First thing that comes to mind when we think about the fall, the consequences of the fall. And Jesus is saying, I have experienced everything in this world. I have experienced all of the consequences of the fall. I have 
lived through this. I died as a man. I came as a man. I am fully God and fully man. And he's reminding us of the importance of both aspects. And then he says the most important thing in our faith, that he came back to life. You know, without this, our faith is meaningless. Without this, Jesus is just a man who came to the earth, who preached some good things and died. Same as any other religion. But with this, we have the power and the promise of God that he conquered this world, that he conquered death. With the resurrection, we have trust in God that he has given us victory. So this is how Jesus introduces himself to um, this church. He says, I am fully God. I have all of the attributes of God. I am fully man. I have lived and died as a man. I have experienced everything that a man will experience. But I came back to life. I have had victory over the world. This is the man that is speaking to this church. So with that in mind, let's move on to what Jesus' message is. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. He opens by saying, I know your pain. And I think there's two kinds of knowledge that are being talked about here. The first, I think, is kind of a a head knowledge. It's a recognition of their pain. He's saying, I see it. It's there. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, I see your pain. He lists exactly what they're going through. He says, I see your poverty. And the word for poverty he uses here, it's not a word that means below average. It's a word that means dirt poor. It means they had nothing. It, it has the idea of begging behind it. In a world that's surrounded by hostilities, a Roman world who is very patriotic and a world full of Jews who just hate Christians, it's not hard to believe that the church becomes a social outcast, that people begin to avoid them, avoid their businesses, and because of this, they begin to suffer um, as a whole. The whole church was poor, and Jesus is saying, I see that. It's there. And then he goes on and he addresses the Jews. And he says, I see what they're causing you. The Jews were probably one of the primary causes of their persecution. They were one of the primary causes of their troubles. The Jews were so zealous in Smyrna to persecute Christians that they would break Sabbath laws just to persecute them. They would break Sabbath laws to put Christians to death. And Jesus says, I see that. They say that they're following me. They say that they're following God, but they're not. They're not. They're following Satan. They may be sons of Abraham, but they're not children of God. And when you look at this and you realize that Jesus is going down through these things and he's listing what these people are going through, you begin to realize that It feels like Jesus is keeping score. Like he says, I see your poverty. I see your tribulation. I see the Jews and what they're putting you through. It begins to feel like Jesus is saying, yep, there's that, and there's that, and there's that. And he's counting all these things up. And it reminds you of verses like Matthew 19, 
29 and 30, where Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Jesus is saying, I see the things you're enduring. I see the things you're suffering. And yes, you are poor in this world. You have nothing in this world. But he also says, you have everything spiritually. You are poor in this world. By this world's standards, you have nothing. But by God's standards, you have everything. You are rich. You are suffering. And I see that. But this will not go unrewarded. You are suffering for my sake, and you will be rewarded for it. And I think that's one kind of knowledge. It's a recognition of what this church is going through, but I think the other goes much deeper. When you read Jesus' words, I know your tribulation, you only have to go back to the previous verse to find that he really does know their tribulation. He knows what pain is. When Jesus said he died, his death was not um, a simple death. It was a death of pain, of suffering. It was beyond pain. And when you look at um, what he endured on the cross, you realize that he, he, he understands pain very well. And it wasn't just physical pain. The physical pain is often what we highlight in that he was beaten and whipped and crucified and he hung on a cross suffocating. But there was also so much emotional and spiritual pain and turmoil that he was facing. When he looked at Peter after Peter had betrayed him, that's unbearable pain. Everyone abandoned him. His disciples abandoned him in his hour of need. God turned his face away from him. Everything he knew was stripped away. And then he took on the sin of the world. Jesus understood agony in that moment. Jesus understood pain. And when you look at the list that Jesus gave this church, you realize he understood each of these things individually. When he says, we, I understand poverty, he did. We have verses that say the disciples fought over what they were going to do when they had just one loaf of bread. When you look at the Jews, you realize Jesus understood what it meant to be persecuted by the ones who were supposed to be following God. He was crucified and betrayed and hunted by these Jewish people. The people who were supposed to be following God were the people who put the Son of God to death. Jesus' understanding of what this church is going through is very intimate. His death is the primary example of this. But I think there's also another understanding of the fact that Jesus understands the church's pain individually in that Jesus is experiencing what that church is going through. You know, us as believers, we are united with Christ. We are connected with him in ways that we can't really understand all that well. But when Jesus met Saul on the Damascus road, he called out to Saul and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. It was personal. He felt what those believers were going through. The believers that Saul put to death, Jesus felt that. He feels all of the pain of the believers. 
And yet, at this church, he says, I know your pain. He feels the pain of Ephesus and all of the other churches, Philadelphia, Rome, wherever the believers are, he felt that pain, but he's calling out this morning and he says, I know your pain. It's amazing when you think about all of the pain that's going on in this world, the persecution that happens in the Middle East, the suffering and the poverty that goes on in Africa. Jesus is enduring all of that. He's saying, he, he takes that on and he feels it, but then he calls out to us and he says, I know your pain. It's not just I'm feeling all of this pain, it's I know your pain, your individual pain. I feel it. So, after Jesus recognizes the, the hardship that the church is facing, he goes on to warn them that more is to come. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The devil is about to throw you into prison. It's easy to become distracted or focused on who is causing the pain, who is causing this struggling. And for the church, it was probably the Romans, the Jews, the people who were putting them in prison, who were killing them, who were putting them at a distance. It was easy to look at them and blame them for their struggles. But here Jesus is reminding them that they're not the enemy. The devil is. The devil is the one who is doing this to you. The devil is the one who is going to be doing more of this to you. And we, when we realize that the devil is our enemy and that Satan is the one that is hunting us and making war against us, that he has power in this world, it brings up a new problem. This problem of, okay, God, you're all powerful, why is this happening? I mean, you just went through everything that this church is suffering. You know our pain, why is this happening? Why are you allowing Satan to do this? How do we understand the fact that Satan is the one in power in this world, and yet we believe that God is all powerful, that he is good, that he loves us, How do we make sense of the pain and suffering that we face when we believe those things? It's hard. And ultimately, I don't think we're called to understand it. We're simply called to trust that in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the hardship, that God is good, that he is sovereign, and that he loves us. And that somehow Satan has power for this time. Jesus says that the persecution will last 10 days. Some people point to this and say it's a reference to the 10 scholars, or 10 scholars, 10 emperors. Some scholars say that there's 10 emperors who this is a reference to. That uh, there will be ten emperors throughout the time in Rome where, who will bring more persecution than any of the other emperors. And 
Others say we don't really see that. And so it's probably a reference to maybe 10 years, maybe it's 10 days. Whatever it is, it's a reference to a definite period of time. Jesus is saying that this time of suffering will end. That it has a beginning and an end. He's saying that someday, you people, you church at Smyrna, you will no longer face the suffering. And I think that that goes to a physical level of eventually the suffering in Smyrna will end, but also a spiritual level of this time on earth of suffering will end. That eventually all pain, all sorrow will be wiped away and we will spend eternity looking at Jesus. But these 10 days, however long they may be, we must, we are called to endure them. We are called to remain faithful in the midst of them. Oftentimes when we give our lives to Jesus, we think life should get better. We've sided with all powerful God. Surely now that he has defeated death, we will receive some sort of blessing. But that's not what we see. When you look at the life of the New Testament church, you don't see a life full of comfort. You see a life full of hardship. When you look at the apostles, the ones who knew Jesus, all of them were martyred, except for John. All of them faced terrible deaths for their faith, because of their faith. And we see all of the churches face persecution and martyrdom because of their faith. They were aware of the price that they were willing to pay. They faced that price every day because of their faith. And probably some of us today can relate to that, to the pain and the hardship that they faced. Wherever they looked, it was another problem. It was another struggle. And some of us today, wherever we look, it's another pain. It's another struggle. And Jesus' call to this church is the same call he gives to us to remain faithful. Remain faithful in the midst of these 10 days. Some of us can relate to the church, but I believe most of us probably can't. Most of us have fairly comfortable lives. We don't face the persecution that this church did. In fact, most of us probably still run in circles where it's still maybe considered beneficial to be a Christian. So, what does this mean for us? Because Jesus' call to remain faithful obviously still applies, but his warning of persecution probably doesn't, at least not in the same sense. So what are we called to be faithful in the midst of? I believe it's probably the opposite of what this church faced. It's we face the enemy of comfort. Comfort was and still is a poison um, to God's people. You look throughout the Old Testament and the history of the church and you don't have to look hard to find that comfort is a danger to the people of God. In the book of Judges, you see this pattern go over and over and over where God blesses his people and they prosper and they receive good things and 
they have comfort. And then they forget about God and they run away and they follow Baal and all these other gods and God says, all right, I'm gonna fix this. And he brings the Philistines in and, or the Moabites or any of the other armies and he puts them into the exile. And then they say, shoot, we fell away from God. Help us out, God. And he helps them and he blesses them and it starts all over. And that's the book of Judges in 30 seconds. It happens over and over and over. But then when you get to the cross, it doesn't fix itself. You look at Constantine. Constantine was the first Christian emperor. And this was a major turning point in the church. Constantine legalized Christianity. He, made, he ended all persecution. The church would never be persecuted like it was in Rome. But then two generations later, his grandson makes Christianity the official religion of Rome. And so what that means is Christianity is not just encouraged, it's enforced. It's not good enough for Christianity to be legalized. Christianity now is a must. In two generations, Christianity has gone from being martyred and killed for their faith to killing others because of theirs. Where persecution often brings um, passion and perseverance, comfort often opens the door for darkness and laziness and evil to enter the church. Whether in suffering or comfort, the danger is the same. We lose sight of God. In suffering, we lose sight of God because we become so focused on our troubles. We become so focused in our poverty or our suffering that we forget about God. In comfort, we become so distracted with our ease, with our comfort that we begin to say, well, maybe later. And what I mean by comfort, I don't mean luxury. I don't mean that you have everything. I mean that you are able to live life without much need. You don't need anything. You see, the church in Smyrna, they needed God. They needed God every day to survive. They said, God, I need you to survive. I need you to provide for my family, for me, so that we don't starve. I need you to protect me so that we aren't slaughtered. But for us, that's not the case. We don't have that luxury of being reminded that we're in a war. You see, we need, we need Jesus' power just as much as the people of Smyrna did. We're just not aware of it. We can get up and go to church and go home and work and whatever else we do, all without realizing our need for God. And that's where our danger is. Jesus is calling us to remain faithful in the midst of suffering, in the midst of comfort. So how do we do this? How do we remain faithful? How do we remain focused on God in the midst of our lives? It's actually quite simple, at least in theory. We remain disciplined. We read our Bibles, we pray, we fast. We don't just read our Bibles, but we study it. We meditate on it. 
We spend time with believers. We spend time alone with God. We do all of these things that we talk about, the things that are called the spiritual disciplines. As part of Bridge, we walked through these spiritual disciplines. We read a book called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, and basically he devoted a chapter to each of the spiritual disciplines, and we would understand and we would unpack and um, try and figure out what it meant to practice these things. And what we learned is that the spiritual disciplines are not ways to get things from God. They're not coins that you put into a vending machine. They're ways to get to God. They're ways of God bringing himself onto us, ways of discovering him. Discipline is how we discover God. We don't just make relationships on accident. You don't just become best friends with someone because it happened. It takes intentionality. It takes decisions and time. And the disciplines are the tools we use to find God. I'm going to read just a couple paragraphs from the book Celebration of Discipline to help us understand um, a little bit of what they are. We must not be led to believe that the disciplines are only for spiritual giants and hence beyond our reach, or only for contemplatives who devote all their time to prayer and meditation. Far from it, God intends the disciplines of the spiritual life to be for ordinary human beings, people who have jobs, who care for children, who wash dishes and mow lawns. In fact, the disciplines are best exercised in the midst of our relationships with husband and wife, our brothers and sisters, our friends and neighbors. Neither should we think that the spiritual disciplines as some dull drudgery aimed at exterminating laughter from the face of the earth. Joy is the keynote of all the disciplines. The purpose of the discipline is liberation from the stifling slavery to self-interest and fear. When the inner spirit is liberated from all that weighs it down, it can hardly be described as dull drudgery. Singing, dancing, even shouting characterize the disciplines of the spiritual life. We often don't like the word discipline, probably because we associate it with punishment. We discipline our children. We get disciplined as children. Um, but the truth is, discipline is a good thing, arguably one of the best things. Discipline is foregoing or undergoing something less than enjoyable sometimes to experience something better. We deny ourselves some worldly thing so that we can experience God's things. In fasting, we say, I'm going to go without food for this amount of time so that I can understand what it means to feed off of God. In prayer and meditation, we spend time alone with people, uh, alone with people, away from people so that we can spend time with God. Discipline is not a negative thing. It's a very positive thing. Jesus is calling these people to remain faithful, to remain disciplined, and to look to him. He's saying, follow me. 
And when you look back at his introduction, he's saying, I've already walked through this. I have gone before you. I, have, I died, but I also conquered this death. He's saying, look to me for your strength. Be faithful to me, and I will give you strength. I will give you the crown. It's quite likely many of these people died, that their time in prison was full of torture and probably ended in their deaths, a public death. but they died because they believed that their savior was the only true way. They died and they remained faithful unto death and Jesus gave them the crown of life. And the crown that he's talking about here, it's not a crown of royalty. He's not crowning them kings, he's crowning them victors. The crown that they're talking about here, it's the crown that Olympic athletes would receive when they won. When they won their event, they would receive this crown and it was a symbol of their victory. It was a symbol that they had conquered their opponents. Jesus is saying, remain faithful to me and I will give you victory. And after he says, I will give you victory, he says his final encouragement. He gives it to the church. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's calling us. He's calling all of us to listen, to heed his call to faithfulness. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus has just finished promising us victory if we remain faithful. It's not about what we do. He never gives some requirements for what we do. He never gives some standard of what we must live up to in order to be considered faithful. He just says, remain faithful, and I will give you the crown. I will give you the victory. All you have to do is remain faithful. And then he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. For this church who is facing death on a continual basis, this is the best news they could have heard. All they're called to do is remain faithful. All they're called to do is to remain trusting God in the midst of their suffering. Jesus is saying, remain faithful unto me and I will give you victory. Remain faithful unto me and you will have conquered this world and you will receive life. And yes, you may die for your faith, but you will have life beyond what you could imagine. Jesus' message to... Um, the suffering church is quite simple. He says, I see your pain. I see it. It's there. And you will be rewarded for it. You will have payment for it. And I know what it's like to go through this. I know what it means to suffer. And I feel what you're going through. but remain faithful unto me. Remain faithful for these 10 days and I will give you victory. Remain faithful and you will receive life.
And that's the call we have this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given your son for us, that he has already received victory over death, and that all we are called to do is to remain faithful. So I pray that as we go forward this week that you would give us the strength to remain faithful, to remain focused on you. Lord, I pray that we would not be distracted by our suffering or our comforts, but that we would fix our eyes on you and that we would walk with you every day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. ABF, sorry.